Rosie, did you like all of those names to read? That was a very, that was a very, very tough passage. Uh, th- there's a story, uh, I don't think it's apocryphal, I think it's a true story about, uh, Oscar Wilde, who was a very naughty man, but a very good Greek scholar, uh, at university, and he was brought up for his final examination, uh, in his Greek class and was presented this chapter to read. Um, and he read it beautifully. Apparently, it's a it's a particularly difficult chapter in in Greek because of all of the technical uh, terms and the nautical terms in there. And he he reads he reads through the, the the part of the passage that he was assigned. And they said, "Thank you very much. That's good." And he's like, "Can't I go on? I want to see how the story comes out." So <clears throat> apparently, he was he was. He was a bad man, but a good a good scholar. Uh, I am actually going to continue the reading, and then I want to uh, offer some uh, uh, some announcements. So we're going to pick up in, in verse twenty one. Uh, again, this is on page one 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 two in your pew Bibles. Uh, I am reading in the ESV translation. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, "Men." You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you... All those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, for they took soundings and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors for the bow, Paul said to the centurion, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the boats of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they had, on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudder, they hoisted the foresail into the wind. They made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest anyone should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. This is the word of the Lord. Ava, would you get me a coffee? That'd be great. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for uh, preserving the life of the Apostle Paul so that we might 
so many years later, hear this story and, and uh, know about your glorious grace. Uh, we pray that as we uh, consider your word this day, that you would uh, speak the truth to us and enable our hearts to hear it. And I do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So on Friday, we had a full sanctuary. Uh, we were uh, doing a funeral for uh, Fred uh, Ungerman. Fred Ungerman joined this church, I don't know, 1958, something like that. He was an elder beginning in 1965. He was a grand man. He was uh, 97 years old uh, when when he finally died. He had a very peaceful going. Uh, he really was healthy uh, all of his life. He just kind of wore out uh, uh, in the end. Um, his funeral service is online. Stephen Clark uh, dragged himself in here uh, to to make sure that we were able to broadcast that. And I would encourage you, if you haven't listened to it, or if you weren't at the service, to listen to it. Because there were testimonies from members of his family which were absolutely fascinating and which were very convicting for me. So Fred had five children, I think five, four, five, a whole bunch of kids. Five kids, and these kids really loved their dad. Uh, they and they and they like their dad. Okay, sometimes we love people that we don't like, right? They both loved and they like their dad. And as I was listening to stories about uh, how he had parented his children, I was thinking, man, I need to step up my game, okay? Because I don't know that my kids would say about me the things that Fred's kids said about him, all right? So I would encourage you to go online, uh, you know, the same way you always find our services here. Listen to those stories. I think, I think they're, they're, uh, they're very important. I want to introduce to you uh, Charles Foster. Why don't you come on forward? Um, some of you know Charles Foster already. Uh, he has come on board staff here uh, to lead our youth. Becca Yorko has been uh, the one who led our youth through the time of COVID, the toughest time uh, in the world, and uh, and uh, her work has taken her off to other things. But uh, Brother Charles uh, has uh, agreed to jump into youth ministry here. He's done a lot of youth ministry at other churches. He comes uh, fully equipped uh, with a lot of experience. Uh, he's going to invent the next generation youth ministry here. We don't know what that's going to look like, uh, but God does, uh, and, and we are trusting him to work through you. So why don't you take that microphone and tell us a, tell us a little bit about what you imagine happening. Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> it's great to be up here, and... Um, just to accept the responsibility and really the charge to really bring some things that I've had some ideas about in the past and even some things that are newer as I'm talking to some of the young people here. I'm already doing Sunday school as I've been for the last month and meeting with uh, some of the young people here and getting their ideas about what's going to happen in Sunday school and even when we transition to doing something in the evening because it does need to be something that's youth-oriented, something that's exciting interesting certainly and um in biblical because that sounds like that shouldn't go together but it actually does <laughs> because sometimes we think it's biblical it's kind of stuffy and everything but the god that created us and wrote that word can reach all of us including young people and it can be with just as much energy as they have in any other thing they do sports and activities. So we're just looking forward to getting started and doing some things. And um, I know some people have already talked to me about wanting to uh, come along and help with us, and we're certainly uh, looking for that. And I'll just be kind of letting you know what's going on as we move forward through this fall and what we're going to be doing as we start into the new year. So anything else you want to do? That's cool. Okay. Good. Okay, so now you know who he is. Uh, make sure you greet him, talk to him. If you're a young person, make sure that you are connected to him. If you have young people in your family, make sure that you be plugging yeah, in with, with Charles. Exactly. Uh, his his uh, uh, number and, and information is in the church directory. Um, and we're delighted. You so Actually, you know what? I, one more thing. Go I just ahead. About that. Keep preaching. And that is, <laughs> that is certainly true. 
if you have young people in the church or maybe who haven't been here, uh, certainly encourage them middle school, high school to get out to uh, Sunday school and see some of the things we're doing. And then it'll just begin to grow from there. I mean, I have my own children there, and we're, we're, we are certainly interested in getting others. We have about five or six that consistently come, and we're really looking forward to growing. For those of you who might not know me, I am married to Dr. Foster, <laughs> there you go, who is over uh, Valley Christian School, and she and I, we did a lot in youth ministry in the past, and it, it just, it's, it's really a challenge to do some things with this generation, because as you know, things are constantly changing, and we're just going to stay on top of those things. So I thank you very much, and the reason I also wanted to get the mic back is, uh, we definitely need your prayers, all right? All right. Well, why don't we begin now by praying. Father God, we thank you uh, for bringing uh, Brother Charles to, to this congregation. We thank you for the call that you've placed on his heart uh, for the youth in this in this church and in, in, in our school and in this community. And Lord, I, I pray that you would work through him in a mighty way to accomplish great things through the young people who are here now and who you will draw here. And I pray that in all these things you would bring yourself honor and glory. I pray this in Jesus' name name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. So at the last session meeting, um, I'm looking for more pieces of paper. At at the last session meeting, the session uh, uh, adopted the budget for 2022. Um, At the congregational meeting, which happens next month, that uh, budget will be presented to you. Uh, in the Presbyterian world, the budget is created by this session and then presented to the to the congregation. Um, it's an aggressive budget uh, in 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 some way. Uh, in some ways, it's not. Let me give you a little historical perspective. Um, in the years 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019, uh, our budget grew every year. And our giving grew in keeping with that every every year as well. And in each of those years, we ended uh, the year with uh, surpluses. In 2015, at nine thousand dollars. 2016, two thousand dollars. 2017, twenty-seven thousand uh, dollars. 2018, six thousand dollars. And 2019, seven thousand uh, dollars. Surpluses at the end at the end of each year. And then the COVID hit. Okay. 2020 uh, has been a rugged year for our congregation, for congregations, of course, around the world. Uh, our giving slipped $41,000 uh, in that one year. Uh, so we re- we received in 2020 $41,000 less than we had uh, in the previous year. Now, we got to the end of that year with a deficit of only $331, which is you know, chump change, but we got there by just slamming the brakes on uh, on our spending, okay? So we have survived that year. This year has been a year of kind of regathering ourselves, okay? We're starting to see faces that, you know, we hadn't seen for a long time. Uh, but 2022, we're back in business, okay? And we're going to be firing on all cylinders, and we've put together a budget to make that possible, all right. Uh, we are going to make sure that all of our ministries are running. We're going to be uh, 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 opening up some things that we have we have closed down. the The budget number for 2022 is actually uh, identical to the budget number of 2021. Okay, it's an increase of like a few hundred dollars. Okay, so it's it's actually a steady budget. But since the giving was so far down, it's for us to reach that is going to be a stretch. What that means in practical terms to run a church like this is about $5,800 every week is what we need to bring in to keep the lights on, to keep the roof patched, to keep the, uh, to keep the, 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 the staff working. Um, and so I want to encourage you to assess your giving uh, I had a wonderful meeting uh, yesterday with uh, Noel Wolf, who is the elder uh, over our stewardship committee. We have a terrific stewardship committee uh, this year. Some of you who are here are part of that. The stewardship committee is uh, in the Presbyterian Church is the committee that is a committee of the session that keeps its mind on 
giving. Uh, but Noel has a much bigger view of this because, you know, as Christians, it's not just our money uh, that's important, but it's our whole lives, our time, what we're doing with our gifting, with our talent. This is why we, we took that month to talk about the gifts of the Spirit because we need to identify our gifts of the Spirit in order to use them. Noel is going to, and Noel and his committee are going to be taking a kind of more robust view of stewardship in the year ahead. So you're going to be hearing from them on a pretty regular basis. Um, in order for us to meet the giving goals of the coming year, we need to look at how we are doing individually, each household. Are we giving, um, in a way that's intentional? Are we giving in a way that's appropriate? Um, a few weeks ago, or maybe it's been a couple months ago now, we did a clean out of the barn. It was something that we needed to do. Uh, the youth group was looking for space, and we wanted to carve out some space there. The, the men's groups need some space, so we wanted to carve out some space there. And uh, Jace Raging got a 40-foot dumpster or 20 I don't know, a big dumpster, and uh, the, the morning comes when we have to clean it out. And we're thinking, oh, this is going to be miserable. This is going to be like forever. But people showed up and it was done so fast that others came and the work was already done. And I mention that because light hands makes easy, many hands makes light work. And it's the same with the giving in the church. When everybody owns a little piece of it, none of us can uh, put $4,800 a week into the plate. But all of us have an, an amount that's appropriate to our income and to our family. And when we do that, it does come together. And, and, it, and, it, and it does work. One of the things that's important in Christian life to recognize is that our Christian discipleship is both individual, it's like me related to Jesus, but it's also corporate. So when I've been redeemed and born again and been attached to Jesus, I've also then been attached to the body of Christ, okay, which is the congregation. All right, so everybody who's called to follow Jesus doesn't then stay at home. They actually join a church and they fit in someplace. So there is a private individual side to stewardship. Uh, scripture commands us to, to give the tithe and it promises a blessing to those who give the tithe. The tithe is an intentional uh, uh, portion of our income and it's the first portion of our income. All right. The, why is the tithe important? A, a tithe is important because in a sense it marks me as belonging to God and my life is belonging to God. So when I give, I give the first part of my income rather than, uh, this is what's left over after I've spent everything else. All right. So the tithe is intentional. It's proportional and it's the first, it's the first part of our income. And when we do that, first of all, our thinking becomes reordered, uh, in relationship to God. All of a sudden, uh, my life in a very practical way becomes disciplined, uh, in line with God's will. All right. Money, your checkbook, uh, reveals your priorities and it reveals your character. Okay, people could snoop on your spending patterns and know immediately what kind of person you are. All right, and so when we when we intention, you know, you can bring him up to me; I'll hold him. When we intentionally set aside a portion of our income, it's a way of signaling to ourselves and signaling to God. You know, my primary purpose here is to be connected to God. And when I have that God connection in order, the other pieces will fall into place. Uh, Noel Wolf has some wonderful testimonies of, uh, about people who have placed, uh, uh, tithe, placed tithing as a priority in their life and really have had the other parts of their life reconfigured. I mean, one, it is the case that we as Americans are uh, not financially savvy and we are financially overextended. Uh, and this includes people who have very large incomes. We were, as Americans, we're always spending more than we're, we're taking in. Uh, and one of the things that the uh, stewardship committee is going to be doing is helping uh, individuals in the congregation 
to get control over their own finances. There's nothing more oppressive than to always be being chased by debt collectors. And so we want, we want people to have freedom from that as well. So the tithe is a personal thing. The tithe is proportional, intentional, uh, and it's off the, it's off the top. It's the, it's the first thing. It's the, your first thing in your budget line. But it's also corporate. Okay? Because the, the tithe that we give is what keeps the fabric of this institution together. It's what allows us to meet week to week. And I give my portion each Sunday, and you're giving your portion each Sunday. And through all of that, the whole thing kind of magically works. You know? I mean, we do keep getting along. The Lord keeps providing. Uh, and that corporateness of the tithe, I think, is important too. To know that there are other people around you who are uh, who are bearing part of the burden. Jordan Goretti uh, introduced a term to me that I hadn't heard before: social loafing. Social loafing. Where you know, it's, this is the, you've seen those people like you know carrying a sedan chair. I've always wanted a sedan chair, by the way. You know where they, they, you know, you got the 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 people who carry you up on their shoulders. So the the, the social loafer is the is the one guy who who isn't actually who, whose shoulders not actually lifting up the piece. When all of us have our shoulder to the wheel or to the to the sedan chair, then the load is actually very light, and I think it's it's kind of a wonderful, uh, encouraging opportunity uh, for us to be uh, uh, connected with with each other uh, in that way. So, just top line again: fifty eight hundred dollars a week is sort of what we need uh, to continue uh, the ministries that we have. That's aside from any new things that we want to take on, uh, or any, uh, capital expenditures that we might, that we might want to, uh, take on. We are, in 2022, going to be treating the church as post-COVID. Okay? That we're back in business. Okay? We've kind of hunkered down and we did our best to get through this, but let's get back in the business of being the church for our people and for, uh, and for, uh, for our neighborhood. All right. Rich Good, you want me to say anything more? Okay. So <laughs> I, I'm looking at Rich Good because he, he, he's the elder who uh, is the treasurer and he's the one who has to worry about this stuff week to week. So he's, he's the one who's looking at the money. So, all right. Uh, enough about that. Um, let's take a look at our scripture text this morning. Let's see where we are on the time. All right, well, let me begin with the conclusion, or not, or let me, let me begin with the outline so you know where we're going. This morning, I want to talk about the interaction of three things. Number one is human free will. Number two is environmental circumstances, stuff that's going on around you in the world. And number three is divine providence. Okay, I want to talk about the interaction of human free will, environmental circumstances, and divine providence. In our story this morning, thank you for that coffee, by the way. My pipes get a little sore and the coffee is soothing. There was a, pa- uh, a preacher that I-, I knew. He's he's gone on to his his glory. Always used to keep sherry in the pulpit, just for medicinal purposes and to lubricate the pipes. So this is coffee, I assure you. <laughs> right. uh, the um, our passage is this really kind of remarkable story. Uh, it's an adventure story uh, of. The shipwreck of the Apostle Paul. You recall that the, uh, Paul has been in Caesarea. He's under house arrest. He's appealed, uh, he, he's basically appealed to a higher court and so now he's going to be sent to Rome. And so, um, there's a centurion by the name of Julius who has responsibility for him. He's got a group of other s- soldiers and they put Paul, along with some other prisoners, on board a ship that's there in Caesarea, and then he starts sailing t- 
toward Rome, okay, which means they're going to go north along the coastline. They're going to go past Lebanon. They're going to go around the coast of Turkey, and then they have to jump across over to Italy. That's, that's, the, that's the plan. They are put aboard a ship uh, that is part of a fleet of ships uh, that haul grain from uh, North Africa, from, from Egypt, to, to Rome. I mean, Rome, you know, is, is like this hugely wealthy center of power. They don't feed themselves, however. Okay. Their grain is coming all the way from Egypt on these very large ships. You notice how many people are aboard this ship? 276. This isn't a little boat. This is a big ship. There's a, there's a huge load of wheat aboard it. There are all of these people. And all of this, and, and there, and the owner of the boat is on there too. And so the people who own these boats would become tremendously wealthy in service to the empire. But notice that the centurion, as a Roman officer, has authority on this ship. He tells them when to sail. He gets to put his men aboard ship. They pull into another port and he transfers them to another boat. Okay, so he's on board the ship, the owner of the ship is there, the captain of the ship is there, but ultimately this centurion has uh, the authority of the empire behind him and can make make uh, the calls about what's happening. Uh, the other thing I, I hope you notice in this is all of the detail. You can go on Google Maps and trace this journey. Okay, you can find these little ports, and some of the ports that are mentioned are tiny little ports. Okay, this is a very accurate historical uh, account uh, of 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 this journey. This is not a legend. This is not a tall tale. This is not Hollywood fiction. And I hope you notice also in the first uh, verse. When it was decided that we, there are parts of the Acts of the Apostles where the pronoun we is used, and we know that in those parts, the author of this book, whose name is Luke, was present at that place. So Luke apparently is on board this ship along with Paul. Okay, uh, Paul must have taken some companions with him. Uh, Paul, uh, we know from the way he's treated aboard this ship, is treated as a man of importance. He probably had a couple of people who were serving as his servants. Uh, and in the Roman system of, you know, uh, of, of servants and owners of servants, he would have been an exalted personality aboard uh, this ship, which is why you'll notice uh, uh, the uh, centurion treating him with uh, kind of an extraordinary respect. So the writer of this account is writing a first-person account. He is on board the ship as this is happening. All of these places are real places. You can trace the route. It all makes sense. People have mapped this out and and, uh, calculated uh, speeds of travel and all of these things. Uh, I think the crucial... uh, Piece for you to keep in mind, those of you who might not have the whole geography of the Mediterranean Sea in your mind, is that their last safe harbor, they've had a rough go of it the whole way. Their last safe harbor is uh, on the south coast of, of Crete. Um, and what was the name of that harbor? Isn't it called... Um, it's called Fair Havens, okay, or Good Harbor, okay. It's on the south coast of Crete, and after they leave that uh, port, that's when the storm hits, and then everything goes crazy, okay. After the storm, two weeks. Imagine being on a boat, two weeks, the weather's so bad, you can't even eat. You think you're going to die, okay. Years ago, my mother wanted to go whale watching. So we drove out to Long Island and we get on one of these little whale boats and we go out, I don't know where we went, but it was fogged in, okay, which meant you couldn't see the horizon. And and I, I, if you're a landlubber and you're on a boat in a fog, 
your stomach feels really queasy really fast. Like, uh, and, and we were only out there three hours and, and I just, you know, I wanted to commit suicide. It was so, it was so miserable, right? Cause that uneasy feeling, well imagine for two weeks of just always being in fear of death, this tremendous storm that, that, that drove these, these, these people along. Paul, uh, when they are in fair havens on the south coast of Crete, Paul advises the centurion, don't leave this port. If you leave this port, uh, it's going to result in loss. All right, Paul gives this word, but the centurion does not pay attention to him. Rather, he pays attention to the pilot and to the owners who are eager to get to Rome, where, of course, that, that's where they're heading. Uh, and so they make a run for it. There happens to be one nice day when the weather's blowing nice, and they go, they leave the port, and then, and then all heck breaks loose. All right? It's so bad. In verse 17, there's this line that says, after hoisting it up, they use supports to undergird the ship. This doesn't really reveal what's happening here. The boat was being battered so much by the storm that the boards were shaking loose. And so they wrapped the boat in ropes to kind of hold it together like a barrel. Okay, this is kind of a last uh, ditch attempt to hold the thing. And then, of course, they begin to jettison the cargo, which is, you know, which is their cash. All The, the whole reason for the trip is, is the cargo on board and they're going to lose the cargo. It's so bad they even throw, across, uh, throw over their equipment, their tackle. Okay, the whole point of throwing those things overboard is to let the boat float up a little higher in the water because ultimately they're just trying to save their lives at this point. In verse 20, we read, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Okay, I don't know how this happens, but I, I guess over time you have so many frights uh, in a storm that I guess you just become resigned to your fate. Like, yeah, we are just not, we are not going to get out of it. We're not going to get out of this thing. And then at that point, at that point of being completely, well, hopeless, Paul receives a word from God. An angel of the Lord comes to Paul, and this is in verse 24. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and God has granted you all those who sail with you. Okay, in other words, you're not going to die. you got to go see Caesar. you got an appointment with Caesar, and all the people who are with you are going to make it too. And so Paul knows that he's not going to die, which is a nice thing. Because you can be in the midst of a terrible storm, and if you at least know that you're not going to die, well... You've got hope, right? You can hold on. You can, you can, you can put up with it. For 14 days they're out there not eating. And then notice what happens in verse 35 after 14 days of this and Paul reveals this vision that he has to the rest of the crew. What does he do and what does it remind you of? And this is verse 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. He's, he's enacting the Lord's Supper aboard this ship. Okay. The moment of crisis has passed. Okay. We're still in the storm. The ship is still going to be wrecked, but we're not going to die. Okay. And so we have the Eucharist, the, 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 the Lord's Supper that, that's, that's going on there. In the end, uh, they see a beach. Uh, it turns out to be, uh, on, on the island of Malta. Um, and they think that they're going to be able to run, run the boat up onto the beach and that would be a safe landing. And, you know, at some point later they can drag the boat off the beach. But it turns out there's a reef along the way. And, uh, you know, the thing that happens when you hit a reef is your boat gets stuck on the reef and it's partially floated and partially not. And then the waves just, just beat it to, to boards. Okay. If you hit a reef, you break up on the reef and, uh, a lot of people then die actually in the wave action smashing them into the reef 
Okay, so there you are on this in, in this churning water, and there are rocks there, and the boat itself is being broken apart on those rocks, and bodies are being broken apart on the rocks. Okay, reefs are very very dangerous. Up on the beach, that's nice and smooth. The reefs you you, you don't you don't want to be involved with. So I want to talk about human will in this story, and I want to talk about environmental circumstances, and I want to talk about divine divine providence. There comes a point in this story when those who are in authority, the centurion, the owner, the boat's captain, receive a bit of godly counsel from the Apostle Paul. He tells them, don't leave this harbor. It's wintertime, by the way. That's why the weather's so bad. Okay, so there's a certain sailing season in the Mediterranean, and they're at the very end of the sailing season, so they're they're kind of pushing their luck on this trip anyway, and it seems like, well, maybe we can just get through this rough weather and get off to Rome finally. Paul says, no, you can't. If you leave this harbor, uh, it's going to be for, it's going to be, it's going to be to your detriment. But they choose not to follow the godly counsel. Instead, they see their circumstances and there's a fair wind blowing. I've heard this word from God, but you know what I'm seeing over here looks pretty good. I've heard this bit of godly counsel, but you know, eh, according to my estimation, this could work out. Maybe, you know, we could, we could make a run for it. There is human will, there are, there is human will in this story. There are decisions that are made that result in the shipwreck. Well, it's not just a human will alone because it's the human will plus the bad weather. So there's human will, but then there are environmental circumstances. There's a storm going on. They've been having stormy weather the whole time. It's been rough the whole time. And in our lives, there are always environmental circumstances that uh, have an input on the results in our life. But there's a combination of things that are going on here. There's a combination of the decisions that we make plus the circumstances. People who are always in trouble, you'll notice that they're always blaming their circumstance. Oh, you know, this bad thing, this this thing happened to me and that's why I'm having this trouble. There are people who are perpetually in trouble, perpetually in crisis, are always blaming their circumstances and they're not looking at their own choices. You may have noticed this. Alright? The two go together. There's the choice and the circumstance. In any circumstance, there there could be a good choice or a bad choice. Okay? I mean, in a storm, there are better and worse choices. In fair weather, there are better and worse choices. And so anyone who blames their circumstance for their long-term condition is a fool and will never prosper. Okay, The person who's going to prosper is going to take responsibility for their decisions. Okay, you can't affect the weather. You don't have any control over the weather, but you do have your, you do have control over what decisions you make about the weather. Human will, environmental circumstances are going on here. In our lives, there is human will. You have free choice. And then there are the circumstances of your life. What's going on in the country? What's going on in your neighborhood? What's going on in your body? What's going on in the economy? There are always circumstances that we have to deal with. And we have free will to choose what we're going to do with that. But there's a third something going on here too. And that's divine providence. The Apostle Paul doesn't make it to Rome because of the storm. The Apostle Paul doesn't make it to Rome because of the the decision of the owners of the ship. In fact, those two things are going to lead to a shipwreck. The Apostle Paul makes it to Rome because God has an appointment 
for the Apostle Paul in Rome. All right? God's got an outcome in mind. He could have gotten to Rome the easy way. He ends up getting there the hard way. Here's what we read, verse 24. Do not be afraid, Paul. God speaking to Paul through an angel. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. That's God's will. There are some people who seem to think, mistakenly, that environmental circumstances or their decisions can prevent God's will from coming to pass. I want to tell you that that is not true. That no matter what you do in your life, no matter what kind of shipwreck you make of your life, God's will will still be done for you. All right? Hey, I would encourage you to take the easy path in life. But even if you're a knucklehead and take the hard path, God's will for your life will be accomplished. We call this God's sovereignty. And we call uh, God's control over the events in the world God's providence. Let me read for you a little bit of theology. Um, this is uh, Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, chapter 5, on providence. I'm sorry the language is very old-fashioned, but I'll read it to you anyway. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. In other words, God, mm, in spite of the decisions we make, in spite of the circumstances of our lives, brings out his purposes for us. So let me read you another passage, because I think it's important for you as a Christian to understand this. Because if you are in Christ, then the outcome for you is glorious. Alright? I don't care what your circumstances are. I don't care how many foolish choices you've made along the way. If you are in Christ, the outcome is glorious. Let me read you a little passage uh, from Ephesians chapter 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. And he has this kind of opening, I don't know what you call this thing, a doxology or something. This is Ephesians 1 chapter 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Those of you who are Christians are Christians because God willed it to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. All of God's providential care in this world is to His own glory and to His own praise. The Apostle Paul has to make it to to Rome to testify before Caesar because God intends for himself to be glorified in front of the most powerful man on earth. And he doesn't care about poor seamanship. He doesn't care about bad sailing weather. He's going to make it come to pass. God is sovereign. God's providence controls our lives. I mention this to you as a word of comfort For those of you who feel like you have made a shipwreck of things. okay. Some of you are on the rocks. And your ship is getting busted up by environmental circumstances. You're there because of decisions you made, whatever. okay. All of us make dumb decisions. But even in that, if you are in Christ... You're going to come through that and God's will in your life will be accomplished. 
Scripture affirms to us that all things, including shipwrecks, work for our good, for those of us who love God and are called according to God's purposes. Let us pray. Father God, you have us in the palm of your hands, and uh, that's our only hope. And we pray this day that we would... uh, I pray that we would listen to godly counsel when it comes along, but I also pray that you would rescue us when we make shipwrecks of our lives. And we look forward to that day when you will finally bring us home to yourself. Um, And I do pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Amen. All right, I'm making an executive decision. We are not going to do the Heidelberg Catechism. We've got a lot of work to do today. It's okay. It's a good thing that you didn't have uh, brunch plans. Okay. Uh, Some people only come to church for brunch. Uh, Crystal Goretti, I would like to invite you forward. Are there other deacons who are here in this room? Come forward. Any other deacons? Joan Clover's a deacon. Once a deacon, always a deacon. Okay, once a deacon, always a deacon. I want all the deacons up here. Would you stand up here around your sister, Crystal? All right. Thank you, darling. All right. In your bulletin is this little sheet. I'm going to stand down here so I can see the whites of your eyes. Okay. Um, a crystal has been uh, duly elected uh, by the congregation to the office uh, of deacon. Uh, she has been examined by the session. Uh, uh, and what we're going to do today is ordain her and install her on this sheet are what we call the constitutional questions. Um, and this is really kind of your final hurdle. So this is the final exam. And if you answer wrong, we'll go back to the beginning, okay? It's possible, okay? It could be, it could happen, okay? I, we don't want to take anything for granted. Okay, so I'm going to read you the questions and you, and you will answer. And then we also have a question for you. Uh, Crystal, do you reaffirm your faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? If so, please say, I do. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the Word of God, totally trustworthy, fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, the supreme, final, and only infallible rule of faith and practice? If so, please say, I do. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? If so, please say, I do. Do you promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with the system of doctrine taught in the Scriptures and as contained in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the catechisms of this church, you will, on your own initiative, make known to your church session the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of your ordination vows. Let me explain. The idea here is that if she believes it today and decides tomorrow to not believe it, she is obliged to come to the session and say, you know, I changed my mind about that. Do you make that promise? You do. Okay. Do you affirm and adopt the essentials of our faith without exception? If so, please say, I do. I do. Do you subscribe to the government and discipline of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church? If so, please say, I do. I do. do you promise uh, subjection to your fellow presbyters in the Lord? If so, please say, I do. I do. Have you been induced, as far as you know your own heart, to accept the office of deacon from love of God and a sincere desire to promote His glory in the gospel of His Son? If so, please say, I have. I have. Um, nah. We don't need that one. Do you promise? Do you... Uh, Mm. Yeah, number nine. Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in promoting the truths of the gospel and the purity and the peace of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise to you on that account? If so, please say, I do. There are a lot of questions. Will you seek to be faithful and diligent in the exercise of your duties as a deacon, whether personal or relative, public or private, and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with exemplary piety before this congregation of which God will make you an officer. 
If so, please say, I will with God's help. Yeah. Are you now willing to take the responsibility in the life of the congregation as a deacon? And will you seek to discharge your duties relying upon the grace of God in such a way that the entire church of Jesus Christ will be blessed? If so, please say, I am. am. All right, for you, congregation. Do you, the members of this congregation, receive Crystal Goretti as a deacon? And do you promise to give her uh, and all of the officers of this church the honor encouragement and obedience in the Lord to which the ordination as an officer entitles her according to the word of God and the constitution of the evangelical Presbyterian church. If so, please say, we do. All right. Uh, Would you please now join me uh, in the Apostles' Creed? Some of you have it memorized. Some of you need to look at it on a piece of paper. <laughs> oh, do you? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, normally we would lay hands on her. Uh, but in this COVID era, we're going to forego that. And let me just pray over her. And please join your hearts together with me as we pray. Father God, we thank you for this call that you have placed upon Crystal's life. We thank you for her uh, willingness and her obedience to respond to that call that you've placed on her life. We pray that you would give her a full measure of your Holy Spirit, that you would equip her to do things that are beyond her natural abilities. Lord, as she is called into this important role within the life of this congregation, I pray that you would bless her and encourage her as she is a blessing and an encouragement to other people. Lord, I pray that you would be honored and glorified through her life. And I pray that you would enable us as a congregation uh, to honor her and to respect her in this office to which you have called her. Lord God, you made the church and you have plugged us into the church in different places and we thank you for uh, this ordination and this installation this day. And we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is my privilege and pleasure to introduce to you Crystal Goretti, who is now installed uh, as a deacon within Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church. Okay. Thank you very much. And you can all go back there, and I guess the band will come forward and uh, lead us in the next little chunk. Thank you, deacons. Oh, shh. No hazing allowed in the deacons.